Welcome to the 69th episode of the Headkick KO podcast. Today we are here to discuss UFC Austin, which was headlined by Kelvin Cater and Josh Emmett. Once we're done with that, we are going to look at some news around the UFC. This week we have two or three fight announcements and one retirement to discuss. And once we get through the news, we are going to look forward to next week's fight card, which is headlined by Armin Sarukian and Matush Gamrat. So, first and foremost, let's get started by talking about Calvin Cater versus Josh Emmett. In the fight itself, I think this was a very close and competitive fight. Both guys did a lot of good things to win that fight. Um, if you look at Cater first, Cater, um, well, we should probably start with Emmett since he won. Looking at what Emmett did to win that fight, Josh Emmett did a really good job of making Calvin Cater worry about the power that was coming back. Um, I think the biggest critique you can give of Calvin Cater's performance is that you would have liked him to be a little bit more active in some situations, and you would have liked him to take a couple more risks, right? Um, I think in rounds four and five, Cater took more risks than he did originally. Um, I think round one, um, he was relatively inactive and didn't take too many risks. Um, so I think that's one thing you could critique of Cater's performance, but I thought he fought well. But Josh Emmett did a very good job making Calvin Cater worry about the power on the other end. As a result, Calvin Cater didn't throw as many straight rights as he usually would, uh, and he didn't throw as many power shots as he usually would, especially early in that fight. Um, and then, on the other hand, when Cater started to throw some of some of those straight rights, he started to connect a little bit more often, and he started to win rounds by wider margins and just started winning some more rounds. Um, and then Josh Emmett did a very good job landing a lot in round three. Round three was a great round for Josh Emmett. He really put the power strikes together and, and really saw some success in that round in terms of landing those strikes. And then the last thing that, or well, both of these guys, I guess, didn't really get tired. So that's another thing to throw in there. But Josh Emmett did a very good job controlling the octagon for a lot of that fight. He did a very good job putting Cater back up against the fence. And he didn't do this from minute one to minute 25. There were moments where Calvin Cater was pushing the action forward. But there were a lot of moments where Josh Emmett had Cater on the back foot. I don't think Cater is as effective on the back foot, so I think that was a good game plan. Um, he is still effective, just not as effective. Um, and then from there, when he had Cater on the back foot, he he did a really good job of throwing some of those power strikes. In some scenarios, those power strikes landed. In other scenarios, those did not, but um, that is okay. So I think that Emmett fought a really good fight. Cater did a lot of things that I really like. Before this fight, I, I looked for Kelvin to really use his jab and stay on the outside. And I think he did that pretty effective. Um, he, he he threw a lot of jabs and he landed a lot of them. Um, and he stayed on the outside and avoided a lot of the power strikes. He did a, lo a lot of the things he needed to do to win that fight. Um, the one thing, like I said, I would have liked to see Cater throw a little bit more. I think he was a little bit hesitant letting that right hand go. Um, Calvin Cater has so much power 
Um, I know Josh Emmett is one of the most powerful guys in the UFC, probably the most powerful fighter in that weight class. However, Kelvin Cater can knock people out as well. So I think if you can make Emmett worry about the power that's coming back too, then um, you're in a better position to win a fight. But um, at the end of the day, Kelvin Cater did not fight a bad fight. And you do have to be a little bit more cautious when you're fighting Josh Emmett or else he will put you in bad places. Now, um, that's really all I have from an X's and O's standpoint. I don't think anyone is surprised by what happened from the X's and O's. And there isn't too much to break down as far as game plans, etc. Because um, neither guy really did much outside of boxing, right? We didn't see too many kicks. Um, it was a lot of hands being thrown. And we saw Calvin Cater land a really, really nice spinning elbow. Um, but for the most part, it was mostly boxing. 90% of the damage, maybe more, was done with their hands. So that's kind of the boxing breakdown. Um, in terms of in terms of wrestling, um, neither guy really wrestled too much. Josh Emmett went for a couple of takedowns, nothing too crazy. I think he was 0 for 4, but um, I think that's what the stats say. Josh Emmett is a good enough grappler to where he can kind of threaten you with some grappling and then come up top with some strikes. So I'm not convinced that every takedown he attempted was really trying to get Calvin Cater to the ground. I think it was round three. I don't remember exactly if it was round three, but one of those rounds in there, he went for a takedown, got Cater up against the fence, has Cater defending that takedown, and then he comes upstairs and, and throws a really nice hook. So there's things like that where, yeah, you get the takedown defense if you're Calvin Cater, but you also got punched in the face by Josh Emmett. So things like that were a, a couple more wrinkles in the game plan of each fighter, but for the most part, it was just um, the boxing exchanges. And the last thing, actually, um, Josh Emmett did a very good job of emptying the, and I shouldn't say emptying the tank, but Josh Emmett, if you look at, I bet if you look at his activity and you look at the striking numbers and, and the significant strikes attempted, I bet Josh Emmett did most of his high volume striking in the last minute i feel like in the last minute to the last 30 seconds of multiple rounds josh emmett came forward with some blitzes and i think that might have helped him win a couple close rounds so i think that is also something to think about as well in terms of winning rounds josh emmett did very good at getting those that final push to help him win rounds in a couple rounds that were very very close um the last 30 seconds do not outweigh the whole fight, but if you're trying to sway a judge to score a fight one direction or the other, that is a good way to do it. Now, let's talk about the judging itself. Um, we, we have had several instances as of late where I have talked heavily about the judging um, for a very long time. My stance on judging was, I can really see you scoring it either way, and I'm not going to argue about which fighter won which round because it's kind of pointless. It only really results in arguments. Um, but I feel like this is just another one where the judges got it wrong. And, you know, it happens. Judges get it wrong. You can't hit 100% from the field. But the problem is this is now three fights over the last month and a half to two months where I believe the judges have got it wrong in a crucial fight. Um, this fight was for a top five ranking. 
Um, Ketlin Vieira versus Holly Holm. That fight was possibly a title eliminator. Um, maybe one away from a title still. Very crucial fight in that division. Jessica Andrade, or excuse me, not Jessica Andrade. Tyler Santos versus Valentina Shevchenko. Another fight where Shevchenko, you know, defended her belt and, and probably got away with a, with a you know, victory that she possibly um, did not win. I did not score that fight for her. But um, looking at Calvin Cater versus Josh Emmett, I think there is a discrepancy here in what we, how do I word this? I think a, a lot of times those big power shots that Josh Emmett threw at Kelvin Cater, um, I think a lot of them were just blocked and absorbed by the high guard of Kelvin Cater. Kelvin Cater has a really nice high guard. He does. Um, in a fight like this, that high guard helps him a lot. He he doesn't get hit too much to the face. Did Josh Emmett land a lot of good punches in that fight? Yes. But that high guard really helps Cater absorb a lot of those strikes. And when you pair that with Kelvin Cater's body language, I feel like you get the appearance that Emmett is winning when he's not really landing anything that is causing damage, right? Or Or, or anything that is effective striking. Um, when, when you look at a lot of exchanges, I feel like, and when I say this, I'm mainly talking about round two, right? Cause round two is the swing round rounds one and round two are the close rounds. Um, round three was clearly Emmett and round four and five were clearly cater. So that leaves you with round one and two to really discuss and debate. Um, so when I say a lot of these clean and power shots by Emmett, you know, really got caught up in the guard or didn't land cleanly. I'm not talking about round three where Emmett landed a lot of really good strikes. I'm talking mainly about those early rounds. Um, so I'd like to make that clear. Um, I'm not saying Emmett didn't land any good strikes because he did. He really did. I just thought a lot of them were in round three and a lot of his damage and effective striking came in round three. And then round one, um, in round two, there wasn't really a, a, a lot of damage on either side. So that's why these rounds are close. But back to my point that I was going to make before I, you know, made that disclaimer. Um, if you look at the, the way that this fight was going, Josh Emmett was throwing a lot of overhands and power hooks and things of that nature. And I think Kelvin Cater really did a really good job of absorbing those to his guard. The problem is I feel like the way that Cater's body language was, like, Kelvin Cater sometimes, I feel like he doesn't, If it, I don't know what it is. I don't know if he just loses balance. Like, he tripped once early in the fight and fell down. Um, there was another moment. There were a couple other moments where he, he is evading backwards, and I talked earlier about how Josh Emmett did a very good job pushing Kelvin Cater back. And I felt like there were times where, you know, maybe Kelvin Cater was just running into the fence not knowing it was there. Um... He'd be backing up. He'd, he'd absorb a power shot, and then he'd, he his back would hit the hit the cage hard, and he'd bounce off. And it, I don't know if that gives the appearance to the judges that Josh Emmett is landing all these power strikes. But really, in the first couple rounds, I don't really think either guy landed too much damage. And I think I think you can give round one to Josh Emmett. I think round one is the closest round of that fight. But I'm I think that goes Emmett. 
But I think round two, that is also very close. I, I feel that was a Kelvin Cater round. He started using that jab a lot better. And he, and he really got himself back into that fight. Because after round one, I was watching the fight with um, one of my buddies. And I said, ah, after round one, I was like, I, I, think, I think Josh Emmett's going to win this fight. And, you know, it was a, it, it felt like Josh Emmett, you know, won a close round and, and was starting to pick up steam. And then after round two, I was like, oh, we got a fight on our hands. You know, I think Kelvin Cater's back in this one. Um, that's kind of the way I felt watching that fight. I really felt like Kelvin Cater won that second round and, and had that fight tied up going into round three. Um, and if you look at the actual judges' scorecards, the two judges scored that for Josh Emmett. One judge gave Emmett rounds one, two, and three, and gave Cater the last two. Um, once again, round two is a swing round. I think it goes Cater. Um, that judge saw it Emmett. However, Chris Lee, Chris Lee was the other judge that scored that fight for Josh Emmett. And if you look at his scorecard, Chris Lee gave Emmett round two, or excuse me, Chris Lee gave Cater Wait, 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 wait. Let me think about this. Okay. Chris Lee gave Josh Emmett rounds one, three, and four, and gave Kelvin Cater rounds two and rounds five. Now, if you watch that fight with your eyes and score round four for Josh Emmett, I don't know what you're watching. I mean, even looking at Josh Emmett's team, Josh Emmett said after the fight he felt he won 4-1. His corner was telling him they were up 3-1 going he that he was up 3-1 going into round 5. That one round that Emmett's team didn't feel that they won um, was round 4. So even Josh Emmett who scored this fight 4-1 in his favor, which I do not believe that he won that fight 4 rounds to 1, but even Josh Emmett and his team sitting ringside Scored that fight 4-1. One's obviously a biased scorecard for Emmett. That's what happens when you know someone that well and you're cornering them. That's kind of how that goes. But they, the one round where they were like, hey, man, you lost that round was round four. Round four, rounds three and rounds four are the two clearest rounds in that fight. There is no excuse to scoring round four for Josh Emmett. It just can't happen. You can't score round three for Kelvin Cater. You can't score round four for Josh Emmett. And you can't score round five for Kel or for Josh Emmett either. So when you're when when we're having this discussion, it's it's less of a discussion. Well, I guess um, if we want to debate who won and look at it just objectively from watching the fight and not talking about the judging at all, um, you would have to talk about round two swing being the swing round. But when you look at this. The, the real swing round on the judge's scorecard was round four. And that is just not, it's a, that's just not how, that's just not how that fight went. You know, Josh Emmett didn't win round four. And it's, it really is a, a tough, you know, th that's the most frustrating thing to me. Because do I think Calvin Cater won this fight? I do. I, I got that feeling that Calvin Cater won watching that fight. And I, and I felt that he won three rounds. If someone wants to write me an essay about why Josh Emmett won, I, I'm, you know, I'm open to changing my mind. I'm open to being wrong. Um, I'd rather be wrong and have the right guy win the fight and having the right guy get their hand raised. 
I would rather, or I, yeah, I'd rather be wrong than, than be right and have the wrong guy, you know, get a victory. So, but it's just so frustrating to me that we have a judge who scores the close round two in what I believe is the correct way. And round two is the rounds one and round two are the two toughest rounds to judge. And I think Chris Lee got rounds one and round round two correct. I think he got those two rounds correct. And then he comes out in rounds four and just says, eh, whatever. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. It is, it is outlandish. And I, I just can't. That's the most frustrating thing to me is that we had... I'd rather see close rounds, right? If all the judges want to give Emmett round two, okay. That's, you know, I, I disagree with it personally. But I'd rather see that than see someone blatantly get a round wrong. That is just, this is such a difficult sport to judge. I'm not saying it's an easy sport to judge. I'm not saying the judges have an easy job. But that's the round you can't get wrong. You can't get round four wrong. Um and I guess I don't really have much else to say here because I think the further I go on this, the further it's just going to become an even more of a tangent. And um, we don't need two judging tangents in back-to-back weeks. So let's talk what is next for both of these guys and then move on to the co-main event. Now, um, We'll start with Josh Emmett because he did get his hand raised. I think this one is fairly clear. Josh Emmett is going to jump from the seventh spot in the rankings to the fourth spot. And I think he's going to get the loser of Brian Ortega versus versus Yeah Rodriguez. Um, Just looking at the current landscape of this division, in terms of the next title shot, there are several outcomes that can really really mess with things. And... It's, it's going to be interesting to watch this division play out. For example, if Max Holloway wins, they're going to have to run Max Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovsky back. If Volkanovsky wins, you know, would they be willing to do a Brian Ortega versus Alexander Volkanovsky rematch, assuming Ortega beats Rodriguez? If, if Volkanovsky wins... Does he say, I'd like to go up and, and challenge for the 155-pound belt? There are a lot of ifs in butts right now at this 145 pound division but assuming that alexander volkanovsky wants to stay at 145 and defend his belt um the number one contenders match is going to be ryan ortega and yaya rodriguez and i think if yaya rodriguez wins he gets a title shot very um you know without a doubt he has not challenged for the title yet he he fought Max Holloway to the closest fight that Max Holloway has had in a minute outside of Alexander Volkanovsky. I think there are impressive things that you can see in that fight that, you know, you can take away from that fight in terms of skill, even though he didn't get his hand raised. Um, identifying skill in a loss is very valuable. Don't just write him off because he lost. And then, you know, if Max Holloway has the belt, you know, we may be having a different discussion. But if Yair, wa- if Yair wins... I think he, he deserves a title shot. And Brian Ortega wins. Like I said, do they want to run Ortega versus Volkanovski back? It seems like it's they're desperate to get Volkanovski some fresh blood at 145 pounds. But um, if Ortega loses, Josh Emmett versus Ortega makes a lot of sense. I think that's a reasonable level of competition for Josh Emmett. Now, for Kelvin Cater, 
Kelvin Cater is an in, is an, in an interesting position because I don't think he should slide too much, right? I don't I don't think he should have to fight too far down in the rankings like he did when he was fighting Jigetjukatse. Kelvin Cater just lost a very close decision loss to Josh Emmett. And if the UFC thinks he lost, and if you think he lost, I would still argue that he doesn't deserve to slide much. Even though he lost, he still proved that he is a top five, top six, top seven level fighter in this division. And I think his next fight should reflect that. He's going to slide down to the five spot. I don't think he slides past the Korean Zombie at five, um, but I think he does drop down one. That'll drop everyone down one, obviously. And I think Hater versus the Korean Zombie makes a lot of sense. Um, that would be a reasonable opponent. You know, that would be a reasonable opponent for Kelvin Cater. And then the Korean Zombie, you know, he doesn't have to slide too far in the rankings after a loss in a title shot either. Makes a lot of sense for both guys. Arnold Allen also would, you know, be a, a decent opponent. I think at the end of the day, you're going to see Calvin Cater, the Korean Zombie, and Arnold Allen. There's going to be three of those guys. I think two of those guys are going to get matched up with one another. Then one of them is going to have to sit on the sidelines and wait um, for someone to win or lose. Or they're going to have to go down in the rankings and fight someone like a uh, Bryce Mitchell or a Mazar Ivalev. Which, not as an appealing of an option if you are a striker like either of these three guys. Now, moving on to the co-main, we had a really, really fun fight here between Kevin Holland and Tim Means. Now, Kevin Holland did a lot of things that you like to see. Tim Means isn't the grappler that, um, you know, Kevin Holland would have to get through to fight for a championship. If that's your goal to fight for a championship, if you're Kevin Holland, you got to get through someone like Usman to win the belt. You'd have to get through someone like Colby like Gilbert Burns, like Hamza Chimaev, like Bilal Muhammad, like Sean Brady, like Kiesa, like Magny. There's a lot of good grapplers in that division. I did not name all of them. Um, those are, I just rattled off a lot very quickly, though. And, you know, he, it wasn't that, but he showed some good things because you can't let Tamines take you down and hold you down. Um, when Kevin Holland was taken down, he was able to get back up fairly quickly and he also stops from takedown attempts at other times, right? Those are the two things you need to do if you're Kevin Holland. Defend the takedown, but if you get taken down, make sure you can get up. That is something that, if you look at another striker like Israel Adesanya, that is the, the two things you need to be able to do. Um, Izzy, Izzy is a great example of someone who added those two things to his game. We see sometimes where people will work on takedown defense, and getting that initial takedown will be difficult. However, they put all their chips into defending a takedown, and then they cannot get up off their back. That can be very, very bad, um, simply because if you time a takedown good enough, it doesn't matter how good someone's takedown defense is. If you're throwing a strike and someone slips under that strike perfectly and is at your hips and they're a D1 level wrestler, they're going to take you down nine times out of ten. Um, if you are got, if you get caught throwing a kick, maybe you simply slip and you fall down. There's a lot of things that can result in you being on bottom, but you need to be able to work back up. Kevin Holland showed those things. All very good things. And then on the feet, Kevin Holland was out there striking 
like Kevin Holland. He did a very good job keeping distance, throwing some throwing some long shots, and then when he was inside, he mixes in some elbows, but also throws some really good hooks. Um, and he really touched up Tim Means really badly. Had him, you know, he landed a couple shots in that first where it was like, ooh, that's a nice shot. And then he um, landed real good at the end of the first, and then in the second round, it wasn't long before he uh, was going to finish that fight. He didn't do it with the striking. He did it with the grappling, but that was immediately started, you know, with the with the strikes. And then he goes out there and finish it, finishes it with a darst choke and very good grappling. Kevin Holland is, might be one of the most underrated grapplers in the UFC just because his grappling up to this fight has been very one-dimensional. He's always had good jiu-jitsu. He can go out there and, and compete in jiu-jitsu tournaments. He has very good jiu-jitsu. He didn't just get a black belt thrown at him for no reason. Um, Kevin Holland can grapple, um, but he's a little one-dimensional and where the uh, historically throughout his career, the takedown defense hasn't been there and getting up off bottom has not been there. Um, but like I said earlier, he showed improvements in that realm. Now, afterwards, that crazy dude called out Sean Brady. Now, I think that clearly shows a couple things. That shows Kevin Holland is done with these types of fights against Tim Means and Cowboy Oliveira. That shows he's ready for ranked competition. He didn't say, oh, I'd like to squeak into the rankings fighting someone like Michelle Pihada, Li Jingliang, Jeff Neal. He didn't ask for that fight. He wanted to go straight into the thick of it. And Kevin Holland knows what he's doing, right? He, he's going in there to fight someone like Sean Brady, who a lot of people think can be a future champion. I am very high on Sean Brady. He is a great fighter, but Sean Brady is a great grappler. However, Sean Brady is a good test, right? If you can't beat Sean Brady because he's gonna he outgrapples you, you're going to get out grappled by the good grapplers ahead of them, ahead of him in this division. It makes a level of sense where I want to get in there and I want to test myself against someone who's not a great matchup. If I get through him, right, that means I can get through someone like Bilal Muhammad. That means I can get through Colby Covington, right? Imagine, imagine a fight where Kevin Holland doesn't get taken down by Colby Covington. Who wins that fight? It's going to be, it's going to be Kevin Holland. And that's obviously you know, a, a big if, but my point being getting through Sean Brady, improving Sean Brady can't take you down is a very good step um, to getting towards the top portion of that 170 pound, 70 pound division. It also does another thing. It also could have an effect where, um, actually isn't Sean Brady booked against Neil Magny? Um, no, Neil Magny's fighting Shafkat Rachmanov. Never mind, my bad. Um, but like I said, um, the other thing it does is you 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 call out Sean Brady, and maybe you get the UFC to say, hey, 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 you can't go to the top ten right away, but we'll give you someone in the top fifteen. We'll give you Jeff Neal, Lee Jingliang, Michelle Pieda. You know, we'll give you one of those guys ranked ten to fifteen. You know, if you look at those guys, Jeff Neal, Li Jingliang, Michelle Pihada, all those guys are pretty good stylistic matchups for Kevin Holland. He'd be able to strike with those guys and do some work on the feet, probably. Um, and, and, and so it's really just one of those situations where you call out a guy, that, and it makes a level of sense. If you beat that guy, 
you're going to be in the top 10, and you have proved that you have overcome your biggest weakness. If you don't get that fight, you're probably still fighting someone in the top 15. I like the call out. I think it makes a level of sense. Ultimately, I don't think they give Kevin Holland Sean Brady. I think they give him someone like I just mentioned, Jeff Neal, Lee Jing Liang, Michelle Pejeda. I've said their three names about 10 times so far, but I think those three guys um, all make a level of sense for Kevin Holland. And um, someone fought last week, and I said they should fight one of those three guys. So I think there's a real chance that um, 12, 13, and 14 at welterweight all fight unranked opponents to um, prove their worthiness at, uh, at, at and prove they deserve to stay in those welterweight rankings. Um, so that is what I imagine will happen next in that division. Now, um, moving um, Tim Means. I'm not sure who Tim Means is going to fight. Tim Means is a hard person to kind of predict who they will fight because Tim Means realistically could be given a veteran and someone who's in a similar position to himself. And at the same time, Tim Means could be given an up-and-comer, a prospect that they're looking to have add Tim Means' name to their resume, and they're looking to see if they can get past the gritty vet. Or they could give him a Daniel White contender series, you know, someone just coming off and fighting their first fight in the UFC. So I'm not even going to bother um, trying to trying to buck up to means because he really could fight just about anyone that is unranked at 170. That's obviously a stretch. He can't fight, you know, they won't just throw him anyone, but um, there are a wide range of opponents for Tim Means. Now let's try and go a little bit quicker here. Um, Joaquin Buckley versus Albert Durayev. Um, I absolutely cannot believe that Joaquin Buckley was able to fight off Durayev's wrestling that entire fight. Credit to him. That shows that he has grown in that department because I really respect Durayev a lot as a wrestler. And I respect his grappling. So that shows the growth that he has made in the UFC um, up to this point. And that was a very good win for him. I don't think that Joaquin Buckley will be fighting a ranked opponent next. I think he's still one or two fights away. Um, when you're looking at who is going to fight ranked opponents at 170, you've got guys like Kevin Holland who still need a shot against someone in the rankings, and Kevin Holland did beat Joaquin Buckley. So, um, actually, Joaquin Buckley fights at 185, so I'm way off. Um, yeah, he fights at 185. I don't even know why I said that, but still, I doubt he gets a ranked fight at 185. Um, there, there are a handful of guys who deserve ranked fights at 185. If he gets one, he's probably going to get someone around that 15 spot. Albert Derive, I don't know where they go from here, uh, but he needs to prove that he can do what he does best, and that is take someone down and control them because he wasn't able to do it to Joaquin Buckley. So he's going to have to have a real big prove-it fight next. Demir Ismagulov and Garam Kutelaba. This was a tremendous bout. Um, this is a real showcase of unranked lightweight talent. And uh, Demir Ismagulov gets the win. Could Garam have won? Yes. This is a prime example of a fight that I don't care to argue because round three was so close and you can give it to either guy. Um, but either way, um, I think both of these guys have long futures at 155 pounds. Uh, I think Demir Ismagulov is going to be fighting a ranked opponent next. 
he has a lot of good wins at 155 that are very meaningful, whether that be that win against Graham, whether it be his wins against Joel Alvarez, Tiago Moises. He has a lot of wins over guys who are unranked but have been ranked or, you know, or those are guys that are respected in the division and that guys that can get you big-time opponents. Um, number 15, Diego Fajeda, I think would be a good entry to those rankings. Um, I'm not sure if Diego Fajeda is booked, but um, I feel bad for Diego Fajeda because he will likely be fighting an unranked opponent next. Um, just the nature of that lightweight division and it probably will not be an easy fight. Um, he's fighting Jakar Close next, so Diego Fajeda is booked. Um, but you know what? Demir Ismagulov, if Diego Fajeda loses that fight, Demir Ismagulov may steal his spot in the rankings. Just something to keep your eye out for. For Garam Kutelaba, I think he should fight one of those guys previously mentioned like a Tiago Moises, a Joel Alvarez, someone like that who everyone agrees is very good at 155 pounds, but just is not ranked. That's where I think you should go with Guram Kutatelatse. Man, his name is a tough one, but um, Guram is pretty easy to get. Gregory Rodriguez and Julian Marquez was an absolute war. Gregory Rodriguez is able to go out there and find the finish. Credit to him for that. Adrian Yanez beat the absolute crap out of Tony Kelly. I really like Adrian Yanez. He said he would fight Nate Maness or Sean O'Malley. Nate Maness is a real possibility. He is fighting this weekend, and if he loses to Umar Nurmagomedov, um, he will be looking for an opponent, and he will be coming off a loss that is a decent booking. And then if Yanez wins that fight, then maybe we can look at some ranked competition. I think that makes sense for both fighters. If Nate Maness wins, you can still look at that fight, I guess. Um, but that would make it a little less convincing because, in my opinion, if you beat Umar Nurmagomedov, you should um, get a crack at the top 15. Um, not only were you willing to fight Umar, but you went out and beat him. That's just kind of my thought process on that, but I guess it would still make sense if Manus won, you could still give him Giannis. Natalia Silva versus Jasmine Judaviscus. Um, Natalia Silva looked really, really good. I was very impressed with the way she fought. I really like her striking. Um, I, I think very highly of her. That was her UFC debut, but I think she has a lot of potential to do some really good things inside of the UFC. So it's obviously only one fight in, and it's not like she just went out there and beat some you know elite competition. So... Um, you know, don't get too high yet, but um, I think there is some potential there. Jeremiah Wells absolutely baptized Court McGee. Wells is someone who, you know what, you know what fight we should book is Jeremiah Wells versus Joaquin Buckley. Didn't think of that till just now, but um, sounds like a whole lot of fun to me. And um, but Jeremiah Wells, great knockout of Court McGee. He is a scary, 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 very scary man. Um, Ricardo Ramos has got another spinning elbow or spinning spinning elbow victory. That is now his second in the UFC. He is a very, very, very good. He, he is very good at throwing those. Um, that was a fun fight. Um, and I am going to talk about all these fights. I didn't say that before, but um, I feel nasty 
leaving anything out of here because there were a lot of fun fights on this card, um, a lot of finishes that deserve, you know, a little bit of recognition. Maria Oliveira, Gloria DePaula, that was not a finish, but that was a very fun fight. Maria Oliveira is a very good striker. Gloria DePaula um, is much better, in my opinion, than her 6-5 and five record suggests. Um, split decision, that's another one that could go either way. Cody Stammen versus Eddie Wineland. This was a mismatch from the jump, and Cody Stammen took advantage of that and got himself a TKO victory. Cody Stammen will be fighting someone who is probably just outside of those rankings at 135 pounds as he looks to get ranked once again. Cody Stammen actually wouldn't be a bad test for Adrian Yanez. Um, if Yanez can stop those takedowns, that would say a lot um, for him because I don't... Yanez has looked really good, but I cannot remember him being taken down. So maybe that would be a fight that could be a really big prove-it fight against against a veteran. But um, to be fair, Cody Stammen, like I said, fought has fought top-tier competition. If you look at his five losses in the UFC, I cannot get over this enough. Cody Stammen is a warrior. His five losses, Saeed Nurmagomedov, Marab, Jimmy Rivera. I thought he fought Umar. Phew. That's not good. I could have swore he fought Umar, but either way, Saeed and Umar are both very, very good. Um, Marab, Jimmy Rivera, not a tremendous loss, but, you know, Jimmy Rivera is a good fighter. Um, Song Yidong, draw, Aljamain Sterling, loss, and then last loss, other losses on the regional scene. Cody Stammen is very, very good. Um, continuing... Phil Hawes beat the absolute crap out of Duran Wynn. Duran Wynn is one tough man. Um, can't believe that um, that I, I can believe that fight was not stopped earlier because Duran Wynn kept fighting through it. But the fact that you know he was he stuck in there for two rounds, almost almost he almost got through that second round was incredible. Um, Roman Delice did had a very nice showing about against Kyle Dalkus. Um, I picked. Roma Delete say I didn't think he was going to win, but I picked him because I uh, don't like Kyle Dawskis calling himself the Darst Knight. That is Tony Ferguson. And the UFC gave out 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, $50,000 performance bonus checks. That tells you just how good this card was. So shout out to Austin. Great card at UFC Austin. We are 40 minutes in, so let's get the show on the road here. Although, or the news section, um, we have a handful of fights to announce. I'm not going to go too in-depth here on any of these, um, but they are some interesting matchups. We will see Jose Aldo versus Marab on UFC 278. That card now has Usman versus Edwards. Aldo versus Marab and Costa versus Rockhold. That card is still months out, but it looks like it's going to be a very, very good pay-per-view. Caitlin Chukagian is out of her fight with Manon Fior on September 3rd. And Jessica Antraj will now be the one stepping in. Another bantamweight fight was announced with Aldo and Marab off the board. Corey Sanhagen needed someone to fight, and he's getting Song Yadong. I was surprised that they gave Sanhagen Song Yadong. I thought he was going to get a bigger-named opponent. I thought that Corey was going to get a 
Cheeto, a Marab, a Rob Font, a, a Jose Aldo. I thought he was going to get one of those guys going all the way down to fight number nine. Song Yidong says a lot about him, but if he can get a win there, he will probably be facing some top-tier competition. Um... Now, Sterling, Aljamain Sterling versus TJ Dillashaw is the last fight on this card that was announced. So, um, that that will headline, I don't know if it'll headline, I actually didn't see if, I, I didn't see anything say headline, but that fight will be on UFC 279. TJ Dillashaw will look to get his belt back against Aljamain Sterling. I think at the end of the day, I talked a lot about um, this fight a couple weeks ago, and I talked about how if you do Aljamain Sterling versus Jose Aldo, you can match up a lot of that division in some really fun and interesting fights. Um, but ultimately, TJ Dillashaw was the right call. I think he earned it. Uh, he's a former champ, had a very, very, very close fight with Corey Sandhagen. Do I think Sandhagen won? Yes, the last time I watched that fight, I scored it for Sandhagen, but once again, that one is a lot closer, um, so I don't want to argue that one too much. Um, maybe I should rewatch that fight and sit down and, and score it and watch it like a judge and, and try and score that more efficiently, um, but either way, Aljamain Sterling versus TJ Dillashaw, that is a very, very good fight, um, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And it looks like we have some answers for who some of those other guys are going to fight. We got our answer with Aldo. We got our answer with Sandhagen. We got our answer with Cruz and Cheeto. We got a lot of answers from a lot of those guys in the top five. And I'm very interested to see how this division is going to play out. In, in, in six months, this bantamweight division could be flipped upside down. You know, we could see some of the guys who are in the top five now be closer to that 10 spot. And we could see some of those guys around that 10 spot all the way up in the top five is going to be interesting. Um, bantamweight is one of the best divisions in the sport, and we are going to see a lot of fun fights in that weight class. So that is something to look out for. Now, um, on not as fun of a note, Zabit, Zabit Magomed Sharipov did announce his retirement, which is a shame. I have been clamoring to see Zabit versus Yair for way too long i wish that fight would have happened but um if zabit thinks it's his time to go it is his time to go you won't hear me put up an argument so it is what it is um now let's look forward to ufc fight night armin sarukian versus matush gamrat they're back in the apex I really am tired of seeing fights in the apex. For the love of God, do we not see what happens when we go to a place like Austin? You know what I mean? That card in Austin yesterday was absolutely fire. And here we are next weekend back in the apex. And it's like, come on. Anyways, let's do a quick run through of Sarukian versus Gamrot so you know what you are looking at next weekend. Armin Sarukian versus Matush Gamrat in the main event. These two guys are two of the best prospects at 155 pounds. Matush Gamrat has one career loss. That loss is to, um, to Garam Kutalatse. Armin Sarukian has two losses. 
One is to Islam Makhlchev in a close decision, and one is the second fight in his professional career. So two really good prospects. Both of these guys are so well-rounded. It is ridiculous. I'm interested to see how this fight is going to go. It's very tough for me to sit here and predict how this fight goes, right? Both guys are so incredibly well-rounded that I could see either guy winning. I, I, I mean, I haven't done film study or anything like that yet, but I'm going to go Armin Sarukian simply because he went in there with Islam Makhlchev, who is now considered one of the best fighters in the world at that division, and he put up one tremendous fight, had some good moments in that fight. So I think that this is going back to my point earlier about taking a loss and looking at the positives from that loss. And, and that loss isn't always a bad thing. I think that's a good example. I will take Armin Sarukian. Neil Magny versus Shavkat Rachmanov. I really, really like this fight. Shavkat Rachmanov is someone who, if you've listened before, you know who Shavkat Rachmanov is. He is a tremendous prospect at 170 pounds. He is very well-rounded. That is the key to a lot of these top prospects nowadays is that they're very, very well-rounded. And if you see a top prospect and you hear people calling them a prospect and they're not well-rounded, you should, you know, your eyebrow should raise up a little bit, whether that be Patty the Batty, who doesn't seem to be as well-rounded as someone like Shavkat Rachmanov, or whether that be someone like Ian Gary, who fights in the same division as Shavkat Rachmanov and is not as well-rounded. Um, so when you're looking for prospects, look for fighters like Shavkat Rachmanov. If you don't know who Shavkat Rachmanov is, you better watch this fight against Neil Magny because you will learn very quickly. I will take Shavkat Rachmanov in this one. I think he is the far better striker in this fight, and he is also a very good grappler, like I mentioned. Um, I just think while this fight is on the feet, he's going to have a very big advantage, and I think he will be able to at least beat Neil Magny, and he may be able to finish him. Jazz Parisian versus Alan Du. Alan Badat, man, I'm, I'm bad with names. This is getting ridiculous. I knocked Shavkat Rachmanov out the park, and then I can't say the, the French last name of Badat, or however you say it. Um, looking at these guys, neither of the, these guys really stand out to me as, as top prospects in this um, weight class. Badat is... Oh, two and one in his last three, but his losses are to Parker Porter and Tom Aspinall. That draw is to, oh, that's a no contest to Rodrigo Nascimento. I did not watch that fight. I wonder what happened. Um, it doesn't say. Oh, well. Jazz Parisian, former Dana White Contender Series fighter. He has gone two and one and two in the UFC win over Roque Martinez two losses to Dantel Mays and Parker Porter um, last loss on the regional scene to Brett, Brett Martin by Kamara in the first round I actually interviewed Brett Martin once for a story shout out Brett Martin he is a great guy and should be in the UFC but that is neither here nor there um Roque Martinez, who is Parisian's last win, 
is that was a split decision and he has lost three in a row this one to me not a great fight i'm surprised it's on the main card um give me parisian i guess um well who cares actually um that's not a great fight um give me allen give me allen we're switching it up tiago moises versus christis giagos is a much better fight here Moises is one of those guys that I talk about frequently as being a very, very good fighter who just sits outside those 155-pound rankings. He's lost two fights in a row, Joel Alvarez and Islam Makhlchev. But like I've said before many, many times today, too, those are two great fighters. And then on the opposite side, we will see Christos Giagos, who has just lost to Armin Sarukian. Prior to that, he had wins over Sean Soriano, Carlton Minus. And if you just scroll through and look at some of his most recent losses, his losses are to Giagos is 19 and nine, it has nine he's 19 and 9 and has nine losses, okay? He his losses are to Armin Sarukian, Drakar Close, Charles Oliveira, Shamil Nikaev, don't really know who that is. But then he lost to Josh Emmett on the regional scene. And he lost to Gilbert Burns in the UFC. Has a loss to Chris Wade in the UFC. But, I mean, nine losses. And you have losses against Gilbert Burns, Josh Emmett, Charles Oliveira, Jakar Close, Armin Sarukian. Whew. I mean, that is five losses that are all top-level competition. The... I am going to lean here. I'm going to pick Thiago Moises. I think he is a very good grappler. And when you look at um, when you look at yeah, Diego's, he, he he does have a lot of losses to elite competition. Problem and he, problem is he doesn't have a lot of wins against elite competition. You know his wins are Sean Toriano, Carlton Minus, Demir has has Mizuto Hirota. Herdson, Batista, you know, not a lot of big names. On the other hand, Tiago Moises, his wins over Michael Johnson, Bobby Green, Alexander Hernandez. And his losses are also to elite competition. Um, like Demir Ismagulov, Islam Makhlchev, Joel Alvarez, um, guys like Benil Daryush, guys like that. So I will take Tiago Moises. Um, we are at 51 minutes, so let's speed this up. Um, Umar Nurmagomedov versus Nate Maness. I really like Umar Nurmagomedov. I think he is has a lot of high potential, and I think he is one of the better Nurmagomedovs outside of Habib. Great striking with that classic um, Nurmagomedov grappling. You know, focuses on submissions a little bit more, if I'm remembering correctly. But his grappling, he might be the best, or excuse me, he might be the best striker out of all the Nurmagomedovs. I will take Umar over Nate Maness. Chris Curtis versus Adolfo Vieira. Give me Adolfo Vieira. He, um, big time jujitsu world champion. He lost to Anthony Hernandez, but he looked far better in his last fight against Dustin Stolfus. I'm going to pick. I'm going to preview that um, Vieira looks keep continues to improve. Um, Tefan Nidici and Carlos Olberg. Olberg has had a lot of fights at um, 100 or at 205 pounds. Friend of 
Israel Adesanya. Um, I think this is going to be a very interesting fight. I anticipate these guys are going to throw down. I think this one's going to come down to who gets caught first. Um, I'll lean towards... I'll lean towards Olberg getting a win. Um... We are going to now start to skim this a little bit more. Um, Holly and Paiva versus Sergey Morozov. Um, Holly and Paiva, I think, is a lot better than he gets credit for. He has a really nice win against Kyler Phillips. And just because he lost to Sean O'Malley, I'm not going to write him off. I will take Holly and Paiva in this one. Um, Brian Kelleher is fighting Mario Bautista. Don't really know much about Mario Bautista, but um, Brian Kelleher is a UFC veteran. Bautista win against Jay Perrin, lost to Trevin Jones, win against Miles Johns, lost to Corey Sandhagen by armbar. Corey Sandhagen has a submission. You learn something new every day. Um, you know, not too much to say about that one. Um, and then I'll, I will lean Kelleher. The other fights on this card that I didn't really have much to say about, slash don't know much about, Jin Frey versus Vanessa Dinopoulos, Cody Durden versus J.P. Baez, T.J. Brown versus Shailen. Sorry, man, I'm not going to try and pronounce your last name. I'll listen to it on the broadcast and see if I can get it next week. Um, so, a lot of fun fights on this card. I think this is, you know, Armin Sarukian versus Matush Gamrat isn't a main event that a lot of people are going to clamor over. However, I think the remainder of this card is pretty solid for a fight night. You're getting Nurmagomedov, you're getting Moises, you're getting Magni, Shavkat Rachmanov, um, Adolfo Vieira. These are a lot of notable fighters, Holly and Paiva. Uh, I don't I don't agree with the bout order necessarily. I think you should probably put Holly and Paiva on the main card, knock Josh Parisian and Alan Budat down further on the card. Brian Kelleher should probably be higher. But um, I don't know how the UFC constructs their cards anymore because sometimes I just look at them and get confused. But that's neither here nor there. One thing I do know for sure is that if you made it this far, I thank you. Um... And I also know that we will be back next week recapping this fight card of Armin Sarukian and Matush Gamrat. I'm pretty interested to talk about that fight. Um, I think that's going to be a very interesting fight to discuss. I'm, I'm pretty excited for this one. There are a lot of other fun fights on there that I think will deliver as well. So I'm excited to talk about that. And I hope you come back next week to listen to that. But... For now, thank you for listening to this episode of the Head Kick KO Podcast. Goodbye.